Hi, I'm Aaron Ironside. Welcome to Active Intelligence, the show where we promise to give you some balance rather than some bias. So get ready to engage your brain because we want you to think about the issue and not simply do what you're told to do or believe what you're told to believe. It's time to engage some Active Intelligence. On today's episode, we talk with Professor Michael Kelly, a man who's an expert, but he's been deemed a climate change denier. He refutes this label, but he doesn't buy everything that the climate change scientists are saying. We'll find out why a little later on. Of course, many of us are encouraged to think that maybe the government's going to help us do something good for the climate by subsidising purchasing electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids as of January 1st next year. Of course, on the other side of that coin, you might get penalised if you try and buy a petrol car, as Transport Minister Michael Wood explains. The maximum fee that will apply to the very dirtiest vehicles that emit over 250 grams of CO2 per tonne of emissions will be $4,500 plus GST, and it will be a sliding scale depending on the emissions profile of the vehicle. That's $4,500 a year. No, no, $4,500 on the purchase price the purchase. Of, of the vehicle. We're sending a, a message to disincentivise uh, the dirtiest vehicles, but it's not, a, not an annual price. One important point to note about the scheme is that it is self-sustaining. So in Budget 2021, $300 million has been uh, injected into the scheme. Uh, the money that comes in from the fees will be recycled to pay for the discounts of people buying the cleanest vehicles. And at the end of about a 10-year period, that $300 million loan will be repaid to the Crown. Further to that, one of the important points about this policy is the analysis very clearly shows that it's a net positive economic impact for New Zealand. New Zealand will save money out of this because we all use so much less fuel and have to import less fuel. That if we don't move forward with policies like the clean car standard and the clean car discount, New Zealand will become a dumping ground for the world's dirtiest vehicles. At the moment, we have one of the dirtiest fleets coming into our country because of the lack of a standard to date, and we're resolving that. And as other countries move forward with policies like these, and also with policies in some cases where internal combustion engine vehicles are actually being banned from certain countries from 2030 onwards, if we don't have the right policies in place, our fleet will get dirtier, not cleaner. We're not going to let that happen. To be honest, it's probably the economic benefit that interests me most. I don't know about you, but I find petrol costs are absolutely exorbitant. But it would be nice to do something good for the climate. I mean, that's if electric vehicles actually do do something good for the environment. Certainly that's the rhetoric. And Climate Change Minister James Shaw reckons this is a long time overdue. This has been uh, quite a long time coming, uh, as um, many people have been um, you know, pushing us to uh, take really strong action on climate change. The last time that there was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the concentrations that there are today, uh, there were palm trees growing in Antarctica. Just to give you a sense of uh, where things are at and the urgency with which we have to deal with our, our carbon dioxide emissions. Um, in uh, Aotearoa, much of that has come from our transport fleet. Uh, and our transport emissions as a country have been the most rapidly growing of any sector of the economy. Uh, so dealing with the energy that we use to get around uh, within our cities and between our cities uh, is uh, one of, if not the most uh, urgent uh, of all of our climate change challenges. Uh, and the Climate Change Commission this week, as uh, Michael said, uh, has really laid down that challenge uh, in, in terms of the scale and the speed with which we need to uh, arrest our transport emissions. So 
So there's the rhetoric, isn't it? That climate change is an imminent threat and we must do something now or the world is going to end. It's serious stuff. And many scientists would have you believe that every scientist in the world is believing that climate change is that much of a challenge. Certainly they get very upset if you dare to suggest that maybe the data isn't as concerning as it would first appear, although sometimes it gets downright nasty in terms of name-calling, a bit of ageism. I mean, check out Bill Nye, the science guy. Do they ever greet me with hostility? Yes, it's, yes, it's nothing but hostility. The big one is Bill Nye's not a scientist. Okay, I can read a graph, so can you. It is infuriating to have people in the United States denying science the same country that sent people to the moon for crying out loud you know you look for reasonable explanations cause and effect I, i'm just not clear on what's going on with so aggressively denying science it's almost like they're on the world is flat camp the world's not flat humans are causing climate change pretending it's not happening is not in anyone's best interest climate denialism is almost exclusively for old people. You very, very seldom meet a young person, a kid, a student, who is, who is in denial about climate change. They're gonna change things. I mean, they're not gonna put up with this denialism, if, for, if, if nothing else, because they can't compete internationally if they keep denying it. And so they're gonna vote and change governments, and denialism will be a thing of the past. And you can draw all kinds of analogies from history, but uh, this one's extraordinary because it's worldwide and it affects everybody. It's not just us versus them, it's us versus ourselves. And so I'm optimistic about the future. We have 12 years. So by 2031, you got to get something done or it's going to be a catastrophe for most of humankind. That's Bill Nye, the science guy, hardly the only one concerned that there are those who refuse to believe the data. The debate gets very heated between those who are pro-climate change scientists, well, pro at least saying it's a problem, and those who might deny the reality of the climate change crisis. I mean, check out this debate between Professor Brian Cox and Malcolm Robinson on Q&A. This is now a clear global problem. Um, the absolute, absolute consensus is that, that human action is leading to an increase in average temperatures. Absolute consensus. It, 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 I, can't, I, I know you may try to argue with that, but you can't. No, not in my uh, mind. So, 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 um, so, so, but therefore, um, but the key point is, can we respond to it? Is it, do we have the political institutions and the political will and the organization globally to respond to this challenge? And that worries me immensely. I don't think we do at the moment. And I'm absolutely stunned that someone who is inspired by Richard Feynman, a fantastic scientist who believes in empirical evidence, is quoting a consensus. Can I just say, I, just, I brought the graph, right? I mean, can I just... <laughs> First of all, that the data has been corrupted, and we know that the 1930s what do you mean were warmer like than today. Yeah. Corrupted? What do you mean corrupted? Been manipulated and, by, and, uh, by NASA. NASA. By the CIA, yes. As far as I'm concerned, politics should be based on empirical evidence. All policy should be based on empirical evidence. I've heard consensus, which is not science. I've heard appeals to authority, which is not science. I've heard um, various You've illusions. Seen a, hang seen on, a graph. I've heard. I'm. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> 
Incredibly dismissive, isn't it? The attitude towards those who would dare to speak up. And yet surely that is right at the heart of the academic process. That academics disagree, they debate, they contest the research, they try and refine the findings to really agree on some facts that can, in a sense, be irrefutable. But not in this case. No, if you don't believe the climate change is a huge crisis that's coming soon, then you are a flat earther. You are some old fuddy-duddy. Not very helpful. Well, my guest today might be old. I don't think he's a flat earther somehow. He is a bona fide expert on the issue of climate change. He spent a good chunk of his life in the UK. He's back here in New Zealand thanks to COVID. I caught up with Professor Michael Kelly and asked him to explain exactly what his experience of being a climate change scientist has involved. In 2008, the United Kingdom passed a Climate Change Act. At that time, I was the chief scientific advisor part-time to the Department of Communities and Local Government in Whitehall. Now, that department, although it's all about social cohesion and everything, also had responsibility for building codes and planning. Now, it turns out that 45% of all the carbon emissions, emissions of carbon dioxide in the UK come from heating air and water in buildings. So I, as a scientific advisor, I pointed out to the civil servants that um, this was a place where this department would have to be in the lead because uh, we had all the levers of power. This appalled them because they said, look, we're sociologists. We've got nothing to do with engineering or, or, or anything like that. And um, so I had three very tough years. I managed to get one success and that I went over and saw the, the uh, government chief scientist of the day, Lord Drayson, who uh, is an engineer, and he got my points immediately and asked, uh, what should he do? And I said, well, we should have a, a pilot program to go and do a major retrofit of some buildings to see whether we really can reduce the carbon emissions. Well, he eventually spent 17 million pounds doing up uh, a couple of hundred social houses. And from that, uh, more recently, I've been able to do calculations that show it will cost us about four trillion pounds to retrofit the whole of UK, um, unless we take into account the learning by doing, which of course is very important. And so I estimate it will cost about two trillion pounds, but it would require a workforce on the scale of the um, NHS. And uh, this is of a scale that we're not, we're just simply not going to do. So at that time, I was a believer like everybody else that climate change was real. I'm still a believer, by the way, in terms of it being a ridge. I still believe that climate change is real uh, because it's been happening down the centuries and it hasn't stopped for the last 50 years suddenly. So I'm, climate change is, um, is, is certainly real. Uh, the only question is, is whether mankind's present activities is going to lead to an imminent catastrophe. And I believe there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And so the, to the extent that people try to call me a climate change denier, what they're saying is that I'm denying that our present behavior is inevitably going to lead to approximate catastrophe. There's two bits there, pro proximate and catastrophe. And there's a third word, inevitably. And that's a chain of, uh, of uh, logic that isn't borne out by any of the evidence. That's one of the challenges here, isn't it? That in a sense, the climate change narrative is one that we're asked to accept in total, 
or not at all. Whereas you're yeah. saying, actually, I'm quite happy with some parts of the story that's being presented by the scientific community, but some of the conclusions that you're not as convinced by. Is that part of the danger here that we're insisting well, that people either swallow and follow and take the entire story in one go? Uh, and then in that sense, we're not allowed to have a conversation. I, I'm really upset about this because I have the privilege of being elected both to the Royal Society in London and the Royal Academy of Engineering in London. And I personally, with the help of one or two others, have been trying to get both organisations to set up a working party to look into the integrity of the engineering projects. Now, the Royal Society has had meetings in the past on uh, how to make decisions uh, in times of deep uncertainty. But my problem goes back one further than that. There's a man called Jerry Revitz, who's a professor of philosophy in Oxford, who unfortunately has coined a phrase called postmodern science. The thing about postmodern science is the problem you're dealing with is extremely complex, such as climate change or perception of climate change. Well, climate change itself is very complex, but there is a perception that something's wrong and we've got to do something about it in spite of deep unknowledge. Now, it's that the second bit that there's something imminently wrong is, is the point where I get stuck. The climate change advocates would say we must act now, the catastrophe yep. is looming, that within yep. the next, well, at least 100 years, potentially, the changes of the climate will be irreversible. Yeah. Do you buy well, that narrative? I mean, why uh, inflame this issue if it isn't that serious? I don't, well, I've got a theory on that, which I'll come on to, but um, the why inflame it? Well, yes, let's come straight on. The why inflame it? The point is there's a lot of professional careers at stake. If I organize a meeting uh, at the Royal Society on the fabrication techniques of nanotechnology, which was my day job for much of the time, um, I'll get 60 or 100 people at it. But if I decide I'm going to have something on nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas, there'll be 300 people and they'll be out the door and into the street. There's a lot of people's careers. If you look at how much money is being spent on climate change, say, compared with cancer, you'd be surprised. Is it really down to the dollars? That's a fairly cynical answer. I'm deeply cynical about it. If the climate scientists were honest enough and got up and said in a group of academics across the various academies of the world, look, sorry, we've been over-egging the situation for a bit. We don't think it's going to be as bad as possible. Their whole um, edifice would collapse and they'd each have 10 students out of work. They just don't want that any more than I would if I'd got into their position. Let's unpack a couple of the pieces here, because on the one hand is this conclusion. Maybe the catastrophe isn't as imminent as being suggested. The other part that you've mentioned is the assumption with climate change you know, conversation is that human activity is the reason for all of this and therefore human activity is the answer. In what regard is that true? How much of that are we supposed to believe? Well, uh, first of all, <clears throat> all the extra carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere that remains there is equal to the amount of uh, CO2 emissions from human activity. So I don't have any problem with the CO2 going up being caused by that. But um, the, the question is, you know, one degree in 150 years, uh, it is important. Everybody says, oh, look, you know, we could be five degrees and it would be dreadful. But if you actually look back in the geological history and the geologists keep telling this, at the time when all of the greatest uh, flourishing of plows and plants and animals 
the, the temperatures were two or three degrees warmer than now, and the carbon dioxide was up at a thousand parts per per million, not uh, 400 as they are now. So there is an historical evidence in the geological record that some of this catastrophe they're talking about is nonsense. Furthermore, the um, ability of mankind to actually deal with the problem that's created has never been so high. I mean, just as everybody's talking about uh, imminent catastrophe, the collapse of food systems, they're turning out genetically modified plants that can live on three drops of water a day or whatever. That's an exaggeration. Let me not be quoted on that. But they, they, they can live on much less water. And we're doing all there's going to be. My prediction is that there'll be vertical farming inside cities. It'll be perfectly possible for mega cities to be self-sufficient in animal protein and green leaf food. Uh, from factories within their city limits by 2050. Let me play devil's advocate here. Because we agree that there is a problem, we just perhaps disagree with the scientific community about the timeline of the problem. Some would say, well, what's the harm though in acting quickly? We all agree that something needs to be done. We might as well do it now. Well, I don't agree that something has to be done because um, you've already assumed it's a problem. I'm not even sure it's actually a problem. I mean, it's a change. I'm not, I'm not arguing. But, you know, here's the, here's the deep irony. The way the sun is behaving over the last 30 years is exactly the same as it was 300 years ago when we went into the deep maunder minimum when we had the little ice age. And that's the time when crops failed, not because of heat, but because of cold. Now, at the moment, we've had over the northern hemisphere, we've had two or three very quite seriously cold winters. And uh, the speculation is that the next Maunder minimum is coming. We're heading for a deep solar minimum. And the only thing that's going to keep humankind out of a catastrophic failure because of the cold is the effect of the greenhouse gases that we've been putting in the atmosphere for the, uh, different reasons for the last 150 years. So when we have, uh, you know, in, in 1700, there was only a billion people on the earth. There's going to be, in 2050, there's going to be 9 billion. And we're going to have to feed them all. Actually, we'll be feeding them from inside, so maybe it's not a problem. But, but the point is, all of these stories have counter stories uh, which don't get the light of day. And they don't get the light of I would feel much happier if a group of serious climate change scientists got up and said, which I've heard one or two of them say in private, but not in public, where, that we're uh, appalled by all the... Um, uh, people who are riding on our coattails. Let's take a step back from this conversation because it's now playing out in a wider narrative where the community is now unclear. What is the credibility of scientists? Where do I find truth in this issue? As you've now pointed out, some experts are quietly holding their reservations. Others are more vocal. Others will say, no, all scientists agree of this topic. When it comes to things like the COVID vaccine, people have now started to wonder, can I trust public health officials. The credibility of scientists and those who we used to see as experts is perhaps as low as it's ever been. What are we to do? How are we to work out who to believe, what to believe? Well, I I do think you raise a problem. I I think it's exacerbated at the moment by something else uh, unrelated to science, and that's the whole business of social media. It doesn't matter what issue you take, whether it's some aspect of... um, Uh, the whole woke spectrum or some aspects of legal change. We're in a situation now where everybody can talk to everybody else about anything. Now, the Royal Society uh, and the Royal Academy of Engineering do put out serious documents. 
and they are peer-reviewed and um, seen. But even there, one of, some of us are arguing that we should have... I'm a great believer of what, in what Steve Coonan, who's just recently written the book on Unsettled, has written of, of what he calls red teams and blue teams. I think that in addition to every time... Um, for example, at the University of Cambridge, when we have reports to the university or reports from the university, members can actually write at the bottom, I disagree, although I'm a member of this committee, I disagree with this particular thing and this thing. So that it's, what comes out is clearly a majority view, but there are some dissensions. I would like to see the dissensions made clear. And I think if the dissensions had made clear in the last 20 years, we might be in a better place in terms of the public trust in science. Now, the countervailing force for that, and I've had it as a scientific advisor, the politicians don't want, oh, on the one hand, on the other, on the third hand, on the fourth hand, on the fifth, or it may be on Monday. All they want is a clear, sharp statement on the basis of which they do something. And uh, they're not interested in all the qualifications. So that when I go, for example, to the Royal Society and listen to a meeting of climate change scientists, they behave as scientists. They say, this data has got this particular range of errors. You know, I've only done it three times. You know, I'll be much more confident when I've repeated it 30 times. They're not the computer models, by the way, because that's another story altogether, but they've done particular measurements of data, for example. And so um, it's, this is a problem. And I'm, I'm sure even if you took the legal fraternity or the economics fraternity, they would have the same despair in their professional circles as, as to the way their own subject is handled in the public domain. As someone who spent his life as a researcher and as an educator, what's your concern now about the future of education in the science domain, given that what is now perhaps cynically a, a point of view being cultivated because it's economically viable becomes what's taught in high schools, becomes what ordinary people on the streets believe. What's, what are we to do about the educational uh, outcomes and, and problems that this creates? Uh, look, this is something I haven't given the same level of detailed thought. I know a number of my colleagues are. The particular problem I have with education, uh, and it's big, um, and I'm now talking not so much of general education, but the ne next generation of scientists and engineers, is that the amount of available knowledge has been growing exponentially. So, for example, 95% of what we know in science and engineering has been discovered since I was a student. So I had three years to do an undergraduate degree. It now takes four, but it still means a lot of stuff that's been discovered in the last 30 years doesn't get a, a rate of mention. Now, of course, a lot of stuff has moved on. I mean, when I was a student here at Victoria University 50 years ago, I did a course on radio physics and I did all sorts of stuff about emitter follower circuits and everything. Nobody needs to do that anymore because you're just presented with an integrated circuit. And you're either a specialist who knows how to make integrated circuits and which you worry about that sort of thing, or you're not, and you just take it as a black box, which does, you hope, what you ask it for. So the big problem has always been in pedagogy, is trying to, and it remains a daily, weekly, monthly issue in universities. What do we teach? Why do we teach it? And how do we teach it? And the problem is, if you talk to any of the end users, they say, we don't want somebody who knows everything about between two wires on a transistor. We want somebody who knows well, here's a problem, what sort of technology and what sort of stuff do we need to actually answer it and then go out and get the specialist knowledge. So it's a much more complicated uh, system. Um, I think the other big advantage, though, that people have today, uh, and I find it in my own behavior now, um, writing something now compared with 50 years ago, is that you have the whole internet at your fingertips. 
So the, the, the spirit in Cambridge is always to teach the bare essentials. Make sure you really understand what uh, the three laws of thermodynamics really mean and what Newton's three laws of uh, motion really mean and what structural integrity of a building really means. And then the argument is if you've really got a deep understanding of that, you can go and look up what you need for a particular building or a particular rocket or a particular steam engine. I fear that leads us back uh, to our earlier concern about things like social media, where now everybody, of course, becomes an expert. Uh, Let's finish today with the practical outworking, though, of this issue. Many of us want to feel like we're a good citizen of the earth. We want to take out our recycling. We want to think about whether or not our activity is part of the problem or part of the solution. But in light of what you're saying, it's unclear as to whether any of that action really will matter at the end of the day. What should ordinary people be doing to make sure that they are a good citizen of the earth? I think this, the whole, let me be clear, global warming is not the only problem in the world. Uh, Just um, 10 years ago, there was a large geomagnetic storm which missed the Earth by about three Earth diameters. If it had come on this time, it would have knocked out much of our electricity system and much of our space-based electronics. Uh, We also have a pandemic which was uh, theoretical a few years ago, but is woefully practical now. So there are many things coming over the horizon at us. Where I do think uh, the environmentalists have got it right, is that to live a more uh, condign life, a more modest life uh, of uh, less uh, gratuitous consumption has something to say for it. I mean, if we can, it doesn't matter how much plastic we have in the world, if we are actually recycling it all the time. But if we have something where we use it once and throw it away, and funny enough, um, if you go into a hospital and see how much plastic, you know, every syringe and everything else is one use in a way. Now, if that stuff is then taken and recycled, um, as opposed to dumped somewhere, then, so I think coming back to your question, living modestly uh, with less rubbish and everything else. By the way, we use energy far more intelligently now or far more efficiently now uh, than we ever did. So, you know, even cars are far more efficient in terms of the use of petrol than they were even 20 years ago. And uh, they're cleaner and everything else. And, and there's no end in sight of those improvements. Um, my, my underlying problem is that if you talk about, I've done a study which I've sent into the Climate Change Commission here, that if you take the three big engineering projects, that's electrifying ground transport, electrifying heat and electri- and doubling the size of the grid to cope with the extra electricity. Those three projects together would cost about $600 billion. Now, I might be out by a factor of two or three, but I'm not out by a factor of 10. So you couldn't do it for $60 billion and you certainly won't need $6,000 billion, but it's about 600. Now, the point is that's, that's the equivalent of our education budget for the next 30 years. That's just to do those three engineering projects. I don't hear anybody talking about the scale of the problem in the public debate. Everybody just assumes the engineers will get on with it. We don't have enough engineers and the bill of materials. It's just amazing. You know, the, the latest estimate is that the current mining of lithium will have to increase 42-fold if we're going to have electric vehicles on the earth. Now, I don't know where they're going to get all this lithium from. And besides, they haven't figured out how to recycle it yet. So given all the problems we allegedly have about nuclear industry and they you know, that we can't get rid of the waste, we're 
stacking up another one. And there's no sensible rounded debate in the public domain. I think we're sleepwalking into an awful future. And it's not going to be one of climate change. It's going to be one. The, the amount of, look, if you have one kilogram of steel in a combined cycle, each kilogram helps to produce two kilowatts of energy. That same amount of steel in a wind turbine or that amount of silicon on a solar panel doesn't produce two kilowatts, it produces two watts. It's a thousand times less efficient. So we're a thousand times more materials demanding in the system we're about to go into. Nobody discusses this. Some challenging bits of information from Professor Michael Kelly, particularly uh, when he told the story of what happened 300 years ago. Many of us have not heard about that. Perhaps a solar ice period, a cooler solar period, might actually uh, be a time where we're grateful for all the carbon in the atmosphere. Certainly, it seems a shame that this is another issue which is entirely one-sided in the public arena. It's on us to go and do our research to find out. But in all of that, to be mindful that we still need to be good global citizens. I don't think one has to be uh, too cynical to believe that all of the factories that have been created over the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution have probably not been good for the planet. The question is, can man do anything to undo the harm? Or is the planet in fact a self-regulating system? It knows what to do better than we do. Of course, sitting on our hands doesn't seem like the right thing to do either. But nor does running around screaming the sky is falling. We need some level heads in this issue because some of the answers that are being proposed are more costly and less sustainable than the current things that we are doing to harm the planet. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. You can visit our website, activeintelligence.nz. Click subscribe and make sure that every episode arrives in your inbox fresh on a Thursday. We'll see you again next time on Active Intelligence.